Welcome back to For Our Faith. Have you ever wondered why Christianity today looks so different than in the time of Acts? Or have you ever wondered or been confused by all of the different interpretations of the Bible and the different versions of Christianity today? Well, I'd like to begin a series of podcasts addressing the history of the church and why it matters to us today. I'd like to suggest that often the reason that Christianity confuses us is because we do not know our history. When we know what we believe and why we believe it, then we have something that most Christians have. However, when we know what we believe, why we believe it, where our beliefs originate, alongside with what we don't believe, why we don't believe it, and where these false or heretical beliefs originate— then we have a compelling narrative that becomes a powerful tool for evangelism. Further, when we observe the godly example and the not-so-godly example of Christians throughout history, we gain a clear vision of what Christ expects from us today. When we know the origin of our beliefs and what Christ expects from us today, we're not as likely to be shaken by false Christianity when we're confronted with it. So to begin, I'd like to point out some general observations about the first church that we can make by reading through the Bible. I'd then like to consider how different the church became by the fourth century. So number one, in the beginning, those who belonged to the church, they belonged because they had chosen to belong. And Jesus made no pretense. This was a call to expand a kingdom that would ultimately result in slander, suffering, and death. And to belong to the church, one had to meet a set of requirements, such as forsaking everything. He had to forsake mother, father, brother, sister, lands, houses, etc., Jesus wasn't looking for those who would abandon the cause of the kingdom when times got tough. He wanted those who, in the very face of death and torture, had nothing to go back to. Number three, the first church did not seek to impose any of its articles of faith upon society or state. We don't read of the early church putting any kind of pressure on the civil leaders to enforce Christianity or its values. Salvation was by way of invitation. In Revelations 22, verse 17, it says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Number four, the first church was a true kingdom that had no physical borders or boundaries. It did not come with observation. There was no marked rise to power by war or fighting, but by sharing the gospel of peace. The first church was also a missionary church in that they were actively expanding the kingdom of heaven by taking the gospel into all nations. And this would be something similar to being ambassadors going out and advancing the interests of their king. And they went literally into all the world. Early accounts, uh, Justin Martyr says, For from Jerusalem there went out into the world 
men, 12 in number, and these illiterate, of no ability in speaking, but by the power of God, they proclaimed to every race of men that they were sent by Christ to teach to all the word of God. Another observation that we can make is that the first church was truly a united church. In Acts 4, verse 32, we read, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that all of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. Another interesting aspect of the first church that we'd like to cover in a future podcast but was their participation in the Lord's Supper was limited to those who belonged to the kingdom of God and who were spiritually clean. Number eight, they baptized those who had counted the cost. And in most cases, the cost meant suffering, slander, torture, and death. Number nine, it was a church that suffered persecution and death. And because of this, Point number 10, they often held worship services in hiding. But though they were suffering and though they were being killed and though they were being destroyed and though they were being hunted down and though they were advancing a kingdom, yet, point number 11, they did not kill or fight back or resist their enemies. After the incident with Peter cutting off the high priest's servant's ear, we do not again read, it's not even suggested that the followers of Christ attempted to resist by means of force because this kingdom was not of the earth, but it was of heaven. Number 12, they did not lay up treasures upon earth because their treasure was truly in heaven. Number 13, they lived lives that were holy and blameless. They literally followed in the footsteps of Christ. Their lives, they looked like the life that Jesus lived. Their thoughts, they reflected the thoughts that Christ had. Their response to good and bad men, it was the same as Christ. Their worldview, it was the same as Christ because they followed a literal interpretation and a literal obedience to what Christ had taught and lived among them. So a... Going now into a brief overview of the 4th century church. By the end of the 4th century, the church looked very different. Following Christ and this revolutionary call had literally been replaced with a theology that talked away and explained away why literal obedience and imitation of Christ was no longer needed. And so now we see within this church, one was a member of the church, not because he counted the cost and chose to suffer, but he was a member of the church because he belonged to a certain geographical region. And one became a Christian not necessarily because he chose to, but because he was either forced to or because there was some benefit in doing so, such as material wealth or maybe just the avoidance of death by not becoming a Christian. This 4th century church had suddenly become an observable, physical kingdom that had very real, marked boundaries. It had palaces, and it had seats of power, and and different governments set up, etc. And it was no longer a missionary church, because everyone living within a certain geographical region was Christian. Church growth now was experienced by expanding the boundaries of the kingdom that they belonged to. The Lord's Supper, instead of it being a gathering in of the saints, it now became mass, and it was given to all citizens, and actually the citizens were forced to partake of it. 
Baptism was no longer a choice, but a law. Baptism no longer meant death, as it did in that first century church, but now it meant actually life. People were baptized to save their life. They were not being baptized and knowing that it was going to cost them their life. And eventually, infant baptism replaced adult baptism. Interestingly, the church became the persecutor instead of the persecuted. And they began to pick up the sword and kill all who resisted Christianity. This church now of the 4th century began to accumulate vast amounts of wealth and resources because their kingdom was no longer of heaven, but it was actually of the earth. And so they began to swear oaths and do all the other things that the governments of the world do. By the 4th century, the lives of these Christians became indistinguishable from the lives of the heathen sinners. And a literal interpretation and following of Christ was replaced with theology. Christ said, follow me, and he made no pretense. If they have done these things to me, they will do them to you. And that is the same call for us today. If they have killed me, they will kill you. And the first Christians understood that to belong to the kingdom of heaven made them a traitor and a threat to every other political nation on earth. They were a very real, literal, political threat. To become a Christian was not to enter into the good life now, but rather the life of a revolutionary whose only purpose was to live and die to expand the kingdom of his Lord. It would literally cost him everything, but in the end, he would obtain eternal life. However, by the 4th century, to become a Christian meant to have a good life. It meant to have material possessions and ease and comfort and the esteem and honor of men. It meant to have the good life now and then in heaven when you die. And you may be wondering, how did, how did this happen? In the next podcast, we would like to answer that question. <laughs>